Informing America's farmers and ranchers. It's Adams on Agriculture. Produced by the American Ag Radio Network. Here's your host, Mike Adams. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Adams on Agriculture. Thank you for joining us, letting us be part of your day. We appreciate it. Here we are at midweek. We'll be talking about the latest uh, numbers in the Purdue CME Group Ag Economy Barometer, showing a slight uptick in uh, confidence. We'll talk about that with Purdue Ag Economist Michael Langemeyer. We'll be talking markets with Arlen Suderman with Stone X. And we will talk about some dairy issues, including July being National Day. Ice Cream Month, that's right. We'll talk about that with the CEO of the International Dairy Foods Association, Michael Dykes, a little bit later on in our program today. Some ice cream sounds pretty good on another hot day through much of the country. Let's talk things over now with Todd Neely from DTN. Todd, how are you? I'm good, Mike. How are you doing? Well, good. I'd be better if I had some ice cream with in front of me right now, but uh, a little hard to do that, do the show at the same time, so I'll wait till afterwards. Hey, let's talk about some of the uh, the issues of the day. I know you've been uh, reporting on what's going on in rural hospitals and the rural health care system. Yeah. Yesterday we had we had uh, Brock Slaybaugh on, a senior vice president with the National Rural Health Association. He said, while rural hospitals have certainly been helped by some of the government assistance here with COVID-19, there are still many challenges remaining for them. Yeah, you know, Mike, it's uh, it's a it's a tight situation. When you look across the, uh, the rural parts of America where hospitals, uh, you know, even coming into this year, we're really in a tough financial spot. Um, you know, we've got hundreds of hospitals that are already kind of on the edge when it comes to, uh, you know, possibly closing their doors. It's been a trend here for the past, you know, eight or ten years that we've seen more hospitals in rural parts of the country closing um, you know, the, the CARES Act, it, it brought some really needed funding to, to that system. Um, but I think the fear going forward is that, you know, once we get past this coronavirus situation, you know, what's it going to mean for these smaller hospitals? Because, you know, they don't have a lot of cash on hand anyway. And so the funding that came to them was kind of, uh, kind of a stopgap to help get through this COVID-19 situation. Uh, but it, it hasn't addressed the larger concerns in, in rural health care itself as to whether, uh, you know, many of these hospitals can even recover, you know, once once they fully open and can do all these other procedures and all the other things that, uh, you know, that these hospitals provide to communities. And so uh, the money's just not there. And so, uh, you know, there's a lot of hope, I think, that at some point, you know, maybe the feds will step up with another round of funding. In fact, it's either going to be needed or we're going to see um, we're going to see a really dire situation come uh, come the fall months. Yeah, that's the point. They were already hurting. The system was in trouble before COVID nineteen. Yeah, absolutely. You know, and it uh, you know start of the year, uh, January, February, March, in that time period, we already saw about twelve rural hospitals close. Um, and so you can imagine how many uh, how many are just kind of sitting on the bubble anyway. Uh, you know, I think the hospitals that are the closest to closing their doors are the ones that you're going to kind of look to as we get to fall to see if they can keep things going. Um, I don't know how that's going to happen, you know, whether we look at a broader a broader reform of the way hospitals are financed and reform or, uh, uh, you know, whether they're able to, to provide more funding from the Fed. But I, I don't know what's going to come of it. But I do know that it's a it's a really critical situation. And I think uh, it's something you, you hope people are paying attention to. Yes, hopefully. And 
There have been some things proposed in Congress. Uh, hopefully some things can be worked out uh, once we work our way through this uh, crisis situation. Let's talk about something else that's being proposed. That is to open up the Farm Bill, rewrite it next year rather than wait till 2023. Uh, I just wrote a commentary for our, for our American Ag Network uh, newsletter. And I, basically I said, yeah. theory versus practice. In theory, that's probably a good idea because... Things change so much right. during a five-year period that a farm bill is usually more reactionary when it's written, meaning it's reacting to what's going on at the time rather than yeah. visionary, because you just can't see. COVID-19 reminds us you can't see what's going, coming down the, the the line all the time. So uh, in, in theory, that's a good idea. But in practice, because of the contentious nature now of writing farm bills and how difficult it is to write one, right. and in fact, they're usually late anymore because they can't come to a consensus with all the different voices now at the table. I, I just think there's much more risk in opening up a farm bill early than there is potential gain by doing so. Yeah. You know, Mike, and it's, it's, yeah, it's a good point. And I think the other side of this too, maybe that, um, you know, we really don't know where agriculture is going to come down when it comes to, you know, the post COVID-19 era, um, you know, we, we've heard a lot about all the pressures that, that various segments of the industry have been feeling through all this. Uh, I mean, you look at the hog industry, there's there's a high probability that we're going to see many producers, small producers, go out of business. Um, you know, so there's a lot of things that I think are still playing out. Now, you know, by the end of the year, we obviously will know more as to what, uh, you know, various segments of ag, you know, where they stand. But you're right. I mean, going into the to next year, you know, the potential of a new administration, uh, the Congress switching hands. I mean, there's just so many things uh, we're really not aware of. You know, there's going to be new members of Congress coming in and others leaving. And um, it just really, it, we're kind of at a messy time. Um, you know, an election year is always a tough time to really look too far ahead. And uh, I think this year in particular is extremely difficult uh, to get a handle on. And when you look at farm bills now, 80% or more of it has it, is about uh, feeding programs, social programs, rather than, you know, actually ag programs. So that that has brought all these voices in to the discussion. Uh, it's also made it harder to, to pass a farm bill because they've become very politicized and there are a lot of agendas there at play and some want to use a farm bill to change farm production practices and things like that. So, right. uh, wow, to to... It just seems to me there's so much risk in opening up early when they can barely get one done every five years. No, and that that's very true. And I think, uh, you know, the politics of the day really drive it, as you know. I mean, it's uh, we've seen a lot of good bipartisan work uh, when it comes to the House Agriculture Committee, the Senate Agriculture Committees. Uh, they've all been very good and, and, and open to, uh, uh, you know, to changes and, and whatever they need to do to help the industry. But you know, we've been in a really highly politically charged time, and I think that's really, uh, really a tough time to do much of anything. And I, you know, even if we go into next year with the idea of opening up the farm bill, it, it's hard to say whether we it could get together fast enough to really get anything done, even next year. You know, it's probably a two to three year process as it is. Yeah, yeah. The the need may be there, but I don't think the means of getting it done exist in our current climate. Yeah the way it is all right todd good to talk with you thanks a lot take care we'll be in touch soon all right yeah good to talk to you take care todd neely dtn reporter all right up next the latest numbers from the purdue cme group 
Ag Economy Barometer. After uh, some couple of down months, a uh, little bit of an uptick. We'll find out what farmers are saying about some key issues impacting their farming operations and how confident are they in what's uh, coming in the future as we continue to deal with COVID-19 and a lot of other very uh, difficult issues, especially in the ag economy. So Purdue ag economist Michael Langemeyer coming up next on AOA. information america's farmers and ranchers need to know adams on agriculture now back to mike adams and we're joined now by purdue ag economist michael langemeyer with the latest uh, numbers from the purdue cme group ag economy barometer michael thank you for joining us looks like we had some improvement uh, in june yes we continue to have some improvement in june we've we've had some improvement for the last two months and and currently the index sits at 117, which is very similar uh, to what it was in March uh, at 121. It's certainly down quite a bit from what it was in January and February, uh, but, but certainly it's good news to see some strength in the index. And what do you attribute that to? I think I think a couple things. I think the uh, the, the planting went pretty smoothly, and so we got the we got the crop in the ground. Um, the, this was the survey took place June twenty second, June twenty sixth, and so it, it was before the recent increase in prices, and so I, I don't think it was necessarily prices, but I think I think people get people uh, you know got the crop in the ground. The crops look pretty good if you drive across the corn belt, and so I, I think that's a big part of it. Yeah, even when prices are low, a good crop does give you optimism. It certainly does, and and uh, you know. Uh, we saw a lot of strength from June to July next year, and so I would like to talk about that. The index increased rather dramatically, uh, you know, going from June, July in 2019. We're not expecting that to happen again uh, in the in the next uh, next next uh, survey, which will take place uh, this month uh, in mid 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 July. Uh, because if you remember last year, we had a large increase in corn prices. Uh, and so just to put the, the current uh, increase in current prices last week or so in perspective, it's relatively small uh, compared to what we saw last year. And so, you know, moving into July, I think we'll continue to see uh, an uptick in optimism. All right. Let's take a look at some of the questions you ask farmers. Uh, you, talk, you ask them about whether or not they feel now is a good time to make large investments in their farming operation. What did they say? That was consistent with the uh, the ag economy barometer index increasing. Uh, the farm capital investment index increased from a, a low of 38 in April uh, to 60 in June. Uh, now 60 is still below that 100. Uh, and index 100 would would indicate that there's that there's a, the same amount of people expecting to purchase machinery as uh, not expecting uh, this to be a good time to purchase machinery. So there's still some pessimism there uh, in terms of this being a good year to purchase machinery, but that pessimism lessened uh, to a certain degree here uh, in in June. And yes, do you expect your farm's financial performance to be better than, worse than, or about the same as last year? What did they say? Yeah, this puts it in perspective. You know, I was talking about that increase in the index. You know, it's certain, certainly things aren't rosy out there. We've still got some working capital challenges, certainly as we head into the fall. And this farm financial performance question really gets at that. Uh, when we asked that question whether they thought 2020 would be better uh, in terms of their farm finances than 2019, 
42% I think it's going to be worse and only 12% better. And so and so that just puts into perspective, you know, even though the index did increase, uh, there's still some pretty tight margins out there. Mm-hmm. And what about farmland prices? What are they expecting there? I was a little surprised that there was there was quite a bit of pessimism in land values in the next 12 months. Uh, 21% thought they were going to have lower land values in the next 12 months uh, and only 10% higher. Uh, you know, looking here, you know, I sit in the eastern Corn Belt. I think we're a little bit more optimistic with regard to land values than, than the folks in, in the western Corn Belt in the Plains. Uh, but, but nevertheless, there is more people thinking that land values are going to decline than increase in the next 12 months. Uh, as you head into looking at land values in the next five years, we've talked about this before, there's still quite a bit of optimism there uh, that land values are going to hold their strength and actually increase in the next five years. In fact, uh, the majority uh, think that land values will, are going to increase over the next five years. We're talking with Purdue Ag Economist Michael Langemeyer about the Purdue CME Group Ag Economy Barometer. Interesting question about uh, doing business online. What did farmers have to say about that? Yes, there's there's a there's about a third uh, that are doing business online, are doing more business online, and and uh, and, and considering doing more business online, which uh, was was a little surprising to me. I didn't know, I didn't, I didn't, I really didn't know what that was going to be. Uh, but that, that that's a fairly high percent. And then we also yeah. asked a question related to uh, related to uh, a willingness to go to um, mm-hmm. extension meetings and and and, and tours and and, uh, and and farm shows. Uh, and we didn't ask a time frame on that. We just asked you, you, you have a tendency to do to go to fewer of these uh, in the near future. And uh, 50%, approximately 50%, said they were they were less likely uh, to go to in-person meetings. And so uh, this whole idea of, of getting more information o- online, doing more business online, has certainly taken hold uh, with the with the COVID-19. I find that very interesting because a big part of the farming year, the ag calendar, if you will, uh, for those of us, uh, whether you're a farmer or a rancher or those involved in it in some way, agribusiness, um, uh, covering it in the media or whatever it may be, a big part of that year centers around events that we, we go to, in-person events. That schedule, of course, that calendar has been drastically changed this year. A lot of questions about moving even into this fall and winter, but the uh, it's interesting what farmers are saying, that, that uh, many of them are less likely to actually go to those if they're held in the future. Now, I guess a lot of it depends on the current environment, right, and whether we come up with a vaccine for, for the coronavirus and things like that. But right now, that's an interesting viewpoint. Yeah, it certainly is, and and, uh, and land-grant universities hold you know, hold experiment station days, mm-hmm. these kinds of things, usually later in the summer. A lot of those are going to be online, um, and so who knows what the attendance is going to be there, but certainly going to be delivered in a, in a different format. I, I do a lot of extension, in-person extension meetings uh, during the winter. I'm, I'm not expecting to do near as many of those. In fact, I'm expecting to those to primarily be Zoom meetings or, or uh, uh, virtual meetings. And so, and so things have really changed uh, with regard to delivering information. Yeah, I think, and that's one of the areas I think I find very interesting to when we see whether or not the changes that are going on now last. You know, is it just during this time, or some of these changes that are going to become accepted moving forward? I think definitely through Christmas, 
Uh, I think we're going to be doing uh, most of the, you know, uh, most of the delivery of knowledge online. Uh, but the real uncertainty is will that continue into the spring and will that continue past next spring? I really think that uh, uh, we're going to have more virtual meetings for the next several years. Mm-hmm. That doesn't mean we won't have in-person meetings, but I think they'll definitely be fewer. It'll be interesting. You also asked a question about the farmers' thoughts and concerns about the, the ethanol industry's future. Yes, we've been asking the last last couple months, and the results have been very consistent. About 70% are, are somewhat concerned or very concerned about the ethanol industry, uh, as they as they should be, uh, because uh, you know let's just let's just remember that 35 to 40 percent of the U.S. corn crop uh, is used for ethanol, and so when there's a, a decrease in demand for ethanol, like there was. Uh, in March, April, and May, that has a, a has a tremendous uh, impact on corn prices. Um, you know, I think the think the ethanol plants are 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 have really increased uh, uh, um, uh, their capacity or or their supply, uh, and so I don't think we're back to normal uh, if there is such a thing anymore. But certainly, uh, certainly, I would expect as we continue to ask that question that there'll be less concern uh, moving into the fall than there has been the last couple months. USDA has issued over $5 billion so far in the Coronavirus Food Assistance Program, CFAP. Uh, you asked farmers about uh, CFAP and how they feel about, it, about its effectiveness and its help. What do they say? They, there's, there's, still a, there's still a group of farmers out there that think that we're going to need, we're going to need additional assistance. And where they're coming from on that, if you, if you look at the changes in working capital projected for 2020 compared to 2019, uh, it, there's still a fairly big drop in working capital. Uh, you know, corn prices have recovered a little bit in the last week. But just to put this in perspective, if you look at nearby corn futures or the December corn futures, we're still down over 40 cents per bushel. Uh, compared to what we were in late January, and so there's still that squeeze on working capital, and 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 that translates into uh, people thinking there's going to be a need for some additional assistance. So they they do think that the more help will be needed. Yes, definitely, and 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 uh, yeah, we 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 uh, we don't spe- specify in, in our survey questions what 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 that would look like, but uh, you know something like the MFP. Mm-hmm. All right, Michael, interesting uh, results uh, in this uh, month's survey. And as you said, the next one will be really interesting as well. Really give us, you know, we're really into the summer months, uh, crop conditions, depending on weather, that could impact it and always prices. It'll be interesting to see. Definitely. Yep. Michael, as always, thanks a lot. We'll talk to you next month. You bet. Take care. All right. You too. Purdue Ag Economist Michael Langemeyer with the latest results in the uh Purdue CME Group Ag Economy Barometer, a little bit of a rebound, rising 14 points to a reading of 117. And that, again, was taken in the month of June. Up next, we're going to talk crop conditions and markets and trade with China and a number of its issues with Arlen Suderman, Chief Commodities Economist with StoneX. That's coming next. Stay with us here on AOA. Information America's farmers and ranchers need to know. Adams on Agriculture. Now back to Mike Adams. And let's talk things over with Arlen Suderman, Chief Commodities Economist for StoneX. Arlen, thanks for joining us. What are the markets focused on right now? 
It's July, it's weather time, and uh, for today, the weather looks a little bit more agreeable to traders are looking in short term. And really, when you look at it, we've seen the high-pressure ridge kind of retrograde back to the south and the west. That's going to allow more moisture to come into the west in the Midwest over the next five days um, and give the corn crop a drink. And then the high pressure comes back in with even more intense heat in the days that follow that. But the shorter-term outlook has higher confidence than the longer-term outlook, and that's what the trade is focused on right now that could all change when the midday updates come out well we often say and this has been said many times over the years well it only matters if it rains in chicago or not if the traders look outside see it's raining in chicago they think it's raining everywhere but uh, you know uh, really they're looking at those crop condition numbers aren't they and and those forecasts uh, they really are. And right now, the crop condition ratings, while they're dropping in the eastern Midwest, especially uh, over the past week, where the dryness has been a big factor, overall nationally, they still look good. And that's what the trade focuses on, the national numbers. I do suspect that they will drop some this next week. But then again, that depends on when and, and uh, how much rain we get here over the next few days, whether it comes ahead of the ratings or not. Um, and uh, then we may have to wait until the following week to see the effects of the heat and, and see those ratings have a bigger impact. How much of an impact, or have we already moved through it, was that last acres report with the drop in corn and soybean acres? Uh, have we moved on from that, or is that still an influence? Well, what that did was narrow the window or the margin for error, but the margin for error is still fairly significant. Uh, the average trade guess, if you look forward for stocks, is still around 2.6 billion bushels for this next year. You really need to get that below 1.5 billion to get the trade really concerned. Um, they've unwound a lot of their short positions the spec funds have. That leaves them a little less concerned. A fair amount of farmer selling took place to offset that. Um, so you really need to see a big enough weather event or combination weather event and unexpected demand to suggest that stocks are going to fall below $1.5 billion and, and then things get more exciting. And right now we don't have enough evidence that we're going to do that. That could all change, but right now we really don't have such evidence that will happen. Big impact on that, of course, is the ethanol industry. We're starting to see some improvement there. How much of an improvement? Well, it's been trending higher. We were really concerned last week about the gasoline consumption numbers kind of pausing as some places started to go back into um, more of a, a shutdown restaurant, starting to shut down again, et cetera, um, and uh, kind of watching that trend. But as we look at the latest data that just came out as we were talking, we are seeing ethanol production continuing to trend higher. We'd like to see it a little bit faster, but it is doing so. Um, and stocks bounced a little bit as well, the 20.6 million barrels. So that suggests that we're getting supply and demand a little bit more into balance. Overall, I think longer term, there's still that theory out there that we will see driving exceed year ago levels maybe by this fall as people replace flying with driving more. I think that's a valid theory, and that would suggest there's more upside risk to USDA's ethanol demand number going forward for the new marketing year, uh, but it's just too soon to see whether that's actually going to be the case or not. Talking with Arlen Suderman with Stone X. 
Arlen, what are we seeing as far as moving that old crop, uh, getting some of that grain out of the bins? We saw quite a bit of movement over the past week. Farmers are responsive to the rally that we saw. Uh, we started seeing some softening about uh, basis reflecting that as they were moving. I know our phones were were fairly active during that period of time. Um, they still got quite a bit left to move, but they uh, are selling into the rally. Uh, focused on getting more singles and doubles and not trying to get the home run. Obviously, the weather could still give us more of a home run environment, but the odds are against that, and I hate to bet the farm on that possibility. But they've got a lot of new crop to sell. They had sold very little new crop coming into this month. Normally, they'd be uh, 30 35% sold by now, and so they've got a lot of catching up to do on the new crop. Well, of course, we have to talk about China and the the watch is on on phase one amidst the growing uh, rhetoric, sometimes very negative rhetoric, back and forth between uh, China and U.S. But there's a lot of speculation on, you know, just where they're going to come in on as compared to those phase one uh, levels. How close are they going to get? It's going to take quite a rush here towards the end. And that's where we expected most of the sales. But do you, how close are you thinking they're going to get? Well, the goal for this year is $36.5 billion. Um, I had reduced my estimate down to maybe $30 billion, and I think right now we need to be looking at can we get to $25 billion. Now, $25 billion would almost be a record, um, but they need to step things up, and there's a c- couple of things that have happened of late that I think influence it. First of all, as I talked to our Shanghai office this week, we're seeing virtually zero movement on ethanol or distiller's grains. For distiller's grains specifically, they need to remove the anti-dumping duties. They have not done so. We've been hearing it's in process for months, and to me that indicates that they're really not that serious about it. Um, They have been becoming much more aggressive in buying soybeans, and they've been buying more corn of late. If you look at their overall import quota, it's about 7 little over 7 million metric tons for this year. Um, They've already imported about 3 million metric tons, a little over that. Most of that's come from Ukraine. They've started taking shipments of some of their purchases from the United States. They got probably about 1.4 million metric tons on the books that they've bought from us that they haven't taken shipment of yet, and they're in the process of doing that. So that means that they could... uh, purchase another two and a half to three million metric tons. Much of that will probably be Ukrainian. Some of that will be us. That's not a market mover. That's not really that big of a total. There's been rumors about them adding another five million metric tons to increase purchases of U.S. corn, but we've been hearing those rumors for a long time and are still lacking the confirmation. So I'm a little bit more discouraged than what I was previously. I just don't think that they're showing the seriousness that I'd like to see in this, although I think they're going to continue to try to say that they are. What do you think is the market reaction if if we get towards the end of the year and it becomes pretty obvious they're not going to hit it, and if it's even below what some of the expectations are, does that cause a big drop in the markets? Well, it'll depend on where we're at market-wise at that time. If we have a big crop out there, we'll probably already be very low, and it'll just help keep us low. If uh, we have a major weather event between now and then, then it may pull us dramatically off of that or something like that. 
Um, but right now, I, you said late in the year, and I think you're right. I don't see any big reaction before then. But by then, we'll also know more about the election results, presidential election. And if President Trump is reelected, I think the market will expect him to respond more in, in line of trying to force them into abiding by it. And what leanings we've seen that have been effective that I think he would follow in the past would be more capital controls. That tends to work with them. Um, could he do some of that before the election? Very possibly, um, because the polls still show that this is an issue that works for him. And if he feels like it'll help give him a boost in the polls, uh, he could toughen it up with some capital controls on China and see them step up their purchases. Um, so that will be a big factor is the elections and what it looks like is happening that will influence how the market responds as far and as well as where we're sitting relative to what the weather has done. Mm -hmm. And finally, what are you seeing with uh, basis out across the country? Uh, basis is is held up pretty well this year, not really reflecting the big production estimates because farmers weren't selling. And so the, the cash market was having to do the work along with the spreads to try to pull it out of the farmer's hands. As farmer selling has started to ratchet up now, we're seeing some locations really starting to weaken their basis. If we see dramatic increases, we get closer to needing the bins emptied out ahead of the new crop, we could see more downside risk in that basis as it weakens. Mm -hmm. All right, well, you're going to put your agronomist hat on and be uh, watching close to those crop conditions this week, right? Yeah, absolutely, and I think as far as this coming week, it's really going to kind of depend on when the rains come and to what extent they come relative to when those uh, surveyors fill out their surveys. Okay, we'll watch it closely. Arlen, we'll talk again next week. Thanks as always. Look forward to it. Thank you. All right, Arlen Suderman, Chief Commodities Economist, with Stone X. Up next, one of my favorite topics, ice cream. That's right. What's your favorite flavor? I have a lot of them. Did you know July is National Ice Cream Month? And you can um, trace this back to 1984. Kentucky Senator Walter D. Huddleston introduced a resolution to proclaim the month of July 1984 National Ice Cream Month. And... Ronald Reagan signed the bill into law that same year, and we still celebrate it today. And we will um, talk with the president and CEO of the International Dairy Foods Association, Michael Dykes, coming up next. We're going to talk about National Ice Cream Month. We have National Ice Cream Day coming up this month. We'll talk about that and some bigger d dairy issues overall Let's grab some ice cream and get ready to celebrate. That's next here on AOA. Information America's farmers and ranchers need to know. Adams on Agriculture. Now, back to Mike Adams. Well, as I mentioned, July is National Ice Cream Month. Did you know that most ice cream companies are family-owned and have been in operation for more than 50 years? And ice cream companies help support the U.S. economy, contributing more than $11 billion directly to the national economy and supporting more than 26,000 direct jobs. 
generating $1.6 billion in direct wages. Here to talk about that is Michael Dykes, President and CEO of the International Dairy Foods Association. Michael, thanks for joining us. Uh, ice cream is more than just good tasting. It's a, it's an important part of our economy. Ice cream is awesome, Mike Adams. Ice cream is awesome. <laughs> Americans love it. Yeah, I love it too. And uh, tell us a little bit about National uh, Ice Cream Month. This goes back to the uh, mid-80s. Goes back to President Reagan. Uh, July is Ice Cream Month. The third Sunday in July, this year, July 19th, is National Ice Cream Day. And as President Reagan recommended, uh, Americans should celebrate with appropriate ceremonies and activities that highlight ice cream. And Americans are eating more ice cream, uh, Mike. Um, traditionally, Americans have eaten about 23 pounds of ice cream per year per person. So that's about uh, two pounds a month, if you will. But we're seeing during this uh, unusual pandemic COVID-19 time, uh, ice cream sales are up. So we expect uh, next year that number will be even higher. Ice cream demands up about 20% from March to June. So uh, Americans continue to, to love their ice cream and continue to eat more ice cream. And that sounds good. Uh, and this is especially important to uh, the dairy industry that has had its share of challenges. Absolutely. Uh, ice cream is one of our major segments, uh, fluid milk, cheese, yogurt, ice cream, and then all the various ingredients uh, that are used, uh, the protein ingredients and other ingredients, whey, uh, lactose, all the ingredients that come from milk as well. So ice cream is one of our one of our five major segments uh, at the International Dairy Foods Association. A lot of different ways to celebrate uh, National Ice Cream Month. I know there are a lot of uh, different ideas and promotions out there. Yes, uh, there certainly are. Uh, uh, July is the the, uh, major month for ice cream production. Uh, And most of the ice cream is made between March and July with uh, production peaking in in July. Uh, Two-thirds of Americans rank vanilla as their favorite ice cream flavor still today. Uh, Sometimes people ask, so where did ice cream start? Uh, A little uncertain. Uh, Some people think, uh, give credit to Marco Polo back in the 1300s. Early Others say maybe King Charles had cream ice in the 1600s. An Italian immigrant first produced the first ice cream cone uh, in New York City in 1896, uh, and we know ice cream was big, uh, and the military had a floating ice cream parlor in 1945 for sailors that uh, could uh, had a capacity of uh, 2,000 gallons of ice cream on board. So a uh, long, rich history of ice cream that continues on through to today, Mike. Well, I'm getting hungrier and hungrier just thinking about it. I'm going to have, to, I'm going to have some today. Uh, let's talk about some other issues, uh, Michael. Um, we know the COVID-19 has had an impact on so many parts of our lives. Part of it, you know, school shutting down, school lunch program shutting down, that's had a, uh, a big impact, a real hardship on, on a lot of families, a lot of kids, especially uh, in the that count on those feeding programs. There's always this issue, it seems like, about the dietary guidelines and dairy's role in, in those guidelines. What's the latest on that? 
Well, uh, the expert committee just released uh, their their initial findings, and that will now go to uh, Secretary of HHS and Secretary of USDA uh, uh, for conclusion in January. Uh, we are we've been pushing for the continue to the dairy as a as a separate segment in the dietary guidelines, and still recommending three servings a day. Uh, we're pleased with where the expert committee has come out so far. Clearly, we, we are still advocating, and there's new research on uh, fat, and that fat is not the culprit in American diets, as we have been thinking for the last several years. Uh, probably uh, carbohydrates and sugar uh, are the major contributors to uh, Americans' obesity issues, and not fat, as was originally thought. So uh, we keep pushing. Uh, we're pleased with what they've come out with so far. Uh, we would we are keep uh, continue to insist that they look at all the recent evidence on fat, but we want to see the guidelines completed and out there uh, and meet the uh, January deadline. Michael, what are some of the ways the dairy industry is dealing with COVID nineteen? What what have we seen uh, uh, as far as the impact on the dairy industry, uh, both the, the challenges and the opportunities uh, through this? Well, like all of agriculture, Mike, uh, you know, uh, COVID-19 was a major disruptor for our industry. But I'm, I'm very pleased to say that our industry has rebounded. Uh, we are surviving this uh, pandemic, and we're doing quite well. And I'm confident that we'll, we'll, be, uh, we'll have a, the supply chain intact, and we'll be productive and efficient when we get on the other side of this. You know, you, you talked about schools and, and restaurants. Uh, about... Fifty percent of the dairy uh, products are consumed in food service, and fifty percent are purchased at retail. So almost overnight, we saw half of our market disappear, nearly half, and we just couldn't make the transition uh, through the uh, distribution system uh, to sell uh, the same volumes through retail. We couldn't double the sales through retail overnight. So. Uh, uh, We've made that transition uh, in different ways. Uh, part of that is food purchases and distribution to food banks and other nonprofits through the farmers to families food boxes and to other Section 32 purchases. We've seen direct payments to dairy farmers right. to help uh, mitigate the damages. And we're working on a uh, recourse loan program for processors to get working capital. So we had three major focus areas during this pandemic. Okay, Michael, we're out of time. But thanks for being with us on National 